Welcome to the Big Screen Symposium 2018 podcast. The Big Screen Symposium took place in Auckland on the 26th and 27th of October. Please note, while many of the speakers used clips in their sessions, we've edited these out to better suit the podcast. Writer-director David Lowry's keynote address dissects his experience of capturing the zeitgeist in his career to date. How can you ensure your story is relevant and interesting to modern audiences? David breaks down his roller coaster ride from trying to make films for posterity to making films that affect people deeply and collaborating closely with a tight-knit filmmaking family. Yeah, Orla, and good morning. I'm going to just shake out my jitters real quick because I want to take a picture of everybody here. That's how I'm going to get started right now because this is kind of amazing to just get to come up here and talk in front of all of you today, and I want to remember it. So hold still while I take a panoramic iPhone photo, which is probably the most zeitgeisty thing I can do this morning. Okay, that's done. <laughs> it, it really is such an honor to get to speak here today, and I can't uh, overstate how awesome it is to be back here in New Zealand. As was just mentioned, I spent the better part of 2015 here shooting this movie called Pete's Dragon for Disney, and that was my third feature film, and it was definitely my biggest, at least in terms of the, the physical production. The movie itself is probably the most intimate movie about a 20-foot-tall dragon ever made, but... The team that made it was the largest I've ever worked with, and we shot for a total of 84 days across both islands here, working with kids and animals and weather and visual effects and an enormous crew of wonderful artists. And I mean, in fact, did anyone, is anyone here that worked on it? Do I have any friends? Yes. I know. So thank you for making this such an amazing experience. It was, without, without a doubt, one of the very best times of my life. Making this movie was incredibly hard, arduous, long, difficult but it was definitely one of the best times of my life. And I, I don't watch the movie anymore. I haven't watched it since we finished it, but I think about the experience of making it all the time. And that's important. And the heart of what I want to say this morning is right there in that sentiment, but I'm going to have to get back to that because I promised that I would entertain you all this morning for longer than the one minute I've already been speaking. So forgive the extremely personal digressions I'm about to foist upon you. So the topic that we're talking about, which I imagine is what well, was up on the screen, is the tuning into the zeitgeist. And that is a tricky one for me, because if you look up my movie's box office receipts, you'll see that the zeitgeist is something I've... It's kind of eluded me. <laughs> I haven't, haven't quite figured it out just yet. So I've been asking myself, what is the best way for a filmmaker or anyone in our industry right now to tap into something so ephemeral? Uh, case in point, right now I'm putting together a cast for a new film that hopefully we'll start shooting next year. And we've been throwing names back and forth and, and looking at lots of wonderful actors. And I'll admit that we've asked ourselves in that process, who's going to get the butts in the seats? Who's going to pull in the audiences while also being exactly right for the part? And I suppose that is one way of trying to happen as that guy, is to predict the audience's favor. And maybe it's important, but it's something that I do not enjoy doing at all. I kind of hate it. I would rather just find the right person, not have to think about whether audiences are going to be excited to turn out to see them or not. Now, this movie also happens to be based on a 14th century medieval poem, and as I was working on the screenplay, I'd ask myself, okay, how can I make this story relevant to modern audiences? I know why it's relevant to me personally, but what can I do to make it useful to the people who are going to come pay money to see it? And asking that question is, I suppose... Another way of trying to capture the zeitgeist, especially on a movie based on a medieval poem, because when you start comparing what mattered 
way back then to what matters now, when you start looking at what matters now, you look at the culture and politics and trends and you start trying to look for ways to find a reflection of that in the work that you're doing. And, and here's where I've really got to admit that I never really looked that hard. Tapping into the zeitgeist is not something I've ever put that much energy into. And in fact, it's something I have in many ways actively ignored, which isn't to say that it's not important, but for better or worse, I made a conscious decision at a certain point to work in a vacuum under the assumption that being as uncalculating as possible about what I was doing would lead to better and more honest work. Intentionally trying to tap into any particular zeitgeist felt like folly to me, especially when we're working in a medium like ours, where in the time it takes for a film to go from conception to release, the pulse of culture may have changed dramatically. And I mean, when you think about it, you know, think about the films that we love the most, they were made decades ago. And those filmmakers surely weren't thinking about what would be in our mind, culturally speaking, in 2018. And if they were, they were probably somewhat off the mark. <laughs> and yet those movies still matter to us. So um, I'm going to pause now to ask, a truly obnoxious question, which is, why do we make movies? And I'm already sorry I asked that because it's a terrible question. It's too big and it's not fair. And I assume most people here are filmmakers of one sort or another. And I imagine that you have all asked yourselves this question and found your own answer. And maybe those answers change from time to time and more likely they're very multifaceted and, and more likely you're happy to let them just float around in your subconscious, rising to the forefront now and then when it's 2 a.m. and you've been on set for 18 hours and you're cold and your back hurts and you still have too many setups to go before you wrap and you're like, why did I choose this career? But we've all got our reasons. And so for now, I'd like to take those reasons as a given, set them aside and focus on a slightly rewarded question, which is what do we hope our films do? To be seen, one would assume, to be enjoyed, to be useful, and then moving on from the passive tense, to provoke, to engage, to entertain, to enlighten, and maybe to last. To last is an important one. Very early on in, in my career, I had a general meeting with an executive at a studio, and it was a lot of chit-chat, and he asked me, well, David, um, so what type of films do you want to make? And I very cheerfully said, well, sir, the type that will go down in history. And he was just like, huh. <laughs> and, but, it, but it was true. That you know, I, that's what I wanted to do. And more than going down in history, I like the idea of mo making movies that got better with a little history. I like the idea of movies that would endure and that would benefit from hindsight and that would look good sitting on a shelf in 20 years. So in 2015, when I came here to make Pete's Dragon, that is what I put a great deal of stock on. I wanted to make movies that would stick around, that would grow with me as I grew, and that would grow with the audiences as well. So what I was after was posterity. And with that in mind, yes, I wanted my movies to tune into the zeitgeist at some undetermined point in the future. I wanted them to be relevant eventually. And this was very important to me. And it still is important to me, but I've been using the past tense for a reason, which is at the beginning of 2016, after I came back from New Zealand and was editing in Los Angeles, I found myself sucked into what I'll now not entirely hyperbolically describe as a paralyzing bout of existential dread. Now, this was brought on by a very specific thing. I read this article in The New Yorker about an earthquake that was overdue in the Pacific Northwest of the United States that would reshape the entire country. 
this article won a Pulitzer Prize and also sent me and many other people down this existential rabbit hole where we just felt, I felt like the world was on the verge of coming to an end. And this was exacerbated by the political crises around the world that are still going on to this day and really then nailed into place by an early marketing meeting at Disney (laughs) in which I had the dawning realization that this movie that I'd been working on for three years at that point would in 12 months' time be little more than a footnote on the fiscal ledger of the studio. And it would also still be my movie. It would be this movie that we had all worked together to make. But what did that amount to in a world that seemed like it was falling apart? So this existential crisis of mine begat two things. The first was my movie, A Ghost Story, which I made almost immediately and which came directly from that sense of unease that I found within myself. That came out last year and included a long monologue about finding hope and joy in the fact that the human race is doomed. And it also begat a general disenchantment with that which I'd previously held so dear, this concept of posterity. Now, this might not sound all that revolutionary. And in fact, it might seem like it makes a lot of sense. But when I made a ghost story, for the first time, I let go of the notion that my movies needed to stick around. And in doing that, I felt incredibly liberated. I didn't change the way I made films, but the context in which I considered what I was making shifted. I was no longer straining for significance. Instead, I put a premium on currency. I wanted to create experiences that some indeterminate number of people would feel deeply for roughly 90 minutes to two hours and which would then evaporate. Or not. Perhaps some folks would think about them or hang on to the residual feelings they were left with, but their experience with the movie was their own. And I would have nothing to do with it. And it would have nothing to do with me. I wouldn't go so far as to say I wanted to make movies that would be fleeting, because a ghost story certainly isn't that, but I no longer had any interest in creating a film that would one day be an object on someone's shelf. I wanted it to be more alive than that. And so now they were becoming something more akin to dreams, there and gone and hard to grab hold of, slipping through fingers and nonetheless leaving some sort of impression. I anticipated that perhaps my movies would be seen on the day they'd be released, but just as likely maybe they'd be dug up and discovered years later, or maybe not discovered at all. The only temporal context that I concerned myself with was putting my all into however many minutes elapsed between the beginning of the film and the end. The lights going down in the cinema and the credits rolling at the end. That was all the movies would be to me. Trying to participate in any sort of cultural epoch was no longer important to me because who knew how long our culture was going to be around? The world's going to end someday. We're all going to perish. But before that happens, I hope to share an experience with you and you and you and all of you and in doing so, illuminate something about the time we have together. Now, when I sat down to prepare these statements, I thought, all right, this is where I'm going to bring it home. (laughs) I felt that something about this divestment of posterity, this embrace of the experiential and of the current would bring me right back to the topic at hand, and I'd have opened a very personal doorway into the zeitgeist. But I have to admit that I have come up completely short. I've been sitting on airplanes on my way here and then in my hotel room here and having trouble connecting the dots as thoroughly as I thought I could. And one of the things I realized was how can I connect those dots when I know that I'm going to keep growing and changing? It's very important to never mistake a breakthrough for a plateau. And I've described these changes that I've gone through just in the past three years, and that's just three years. I've made three movies in that time, but that's not that 
long of a period of time. And I know I'm going to make more films. I know that, you know, who knows how much I'll change before I get to make or get around to making the next one, but I know there will be a next one. And I also know, as I've been considering all of this, I've been saying I far too much. Because while I bring my own mindset into making films, I'm not the only one making them. This is not a solitary craft. We all know this. It might begin with me and with this laptop right here, which is what I write all my scripts on, but whatever I write on my lonesome eventually gets sent to somebody else. Usually, first, that's my producers, with whom I've been making films since I was a teenager. And back then, we'd just go make the movies ourselves. But these days, we might bring on an assistant director to put together a rough schedule and a line producer to put together a budget. And in that budget, there will be 10 or 20 or 100 or 500 lines, one for every person necessary to bring whatever has been written to life. And every one of those individuals will come together with me and we will form a family. And for some odd number of weeks, we will depend upon and support and help one another create. And then at the end of that, having done our best, we will all disband. And the byproduct of our shared experience will be what? Like a DVD that one person might put on a shelf and another might throw out with the garbage, a film that we can be proud of, 90 minutes to two hours of memories that some stranger out there in the world might hang on to. All of these things may be true, but there is a secondary byproduct to that experience that for us here today is, I think, maybe more important. The memory of making those memories. It is our responsibility as as filmmakers to make sure that those memories are good ones, better ones even. I love making movies more than almost anything, and the only thing that makes me happier is seeing that same joy reflected in my collaborators. It is so vitally important to me that our sets be happy, that they be places where everyone who shows up will feel safe and respected and valued and free to do their best, and where everyone's voice will come through in the finished product and complement and amplify the other voices around them. And when you do this, when you create an environment like this, everyone comes back. People come back. You build a family. I've been making films with the same family for years now, in front of and behind the camera, and the work is always very hard, and sometimes I've been able to pay them, sometimes I haven't, but they keep coming back because we care about each other and we love doing what we do together. And as the films grow, the family grows too, and lately I look at them and wonder, how can we grow better? And here suddenly I see a way to tap into the zeitgeist in a more meaningful way. Because a film set is a unique environment where every single person is in a position to give someone else a leg up. And I don't mean this in a sense that everyone has power over someone else. What I mean is that there's always someone looking for an opportunity, and we are in the unique position of being able to help them find it. From the producers to the director to the PAs to the interns, there's always an opportunity to give someone else room to stretch their legs for the first time, to rise to some occasion. And this industry thrives on that, and it can be a beautiful thing, but it also thrives on familiarity. So, for example, I am a white filmmaker in my 30s, and it would be all too easy for me to give a leg up to someone who reminds me of myself. We've seen this happen time and time again over the years, and I've done it myself. And as a result, there are a lot of me's out there. But if I want to grow, if any of us wants to grow, the best thing we can do is to look away from ourselves. And as we build these families to look for people who don't look like us or sound like us or think like us, who aren't the same age or color or gender, on a very basic level, I can give someone a job and they can perform a task and the machine will keep going. 
But more importantly, in keeping that machine moving, we're going to listen to one another and harmonize with one another. And out of that harmony, we're all going to grow. And because these ideas tap into something that is very much on the mind of our industry right now, it occurred to me that perhaps the best way for us as filmmakers to tune into the zeitgeist is not through the movies we make, but in the way we make them and who we make them with. And that, I believe, is where the spirit of the times really matters. And maybe in this case, we can wrestle this particular spirit down to the ground and make it stick around, because this is not just a fleeting whim of currency that I'm talking about. This is simply a better way of doing what we do. And, of course, we'll still have our movies. We'll still work hard on them and give them our all in all of our different myriad ways. And maybe those movies will stick around after we're done with them. Maybe they won't. And maybe they will become beloved or maybe they will fade away. But regardless of their fate, we will have created something else in parallel that I believe is just as important. An experience. An experience and an example. And when we look back on those, the way I look back on my time here in New Zealand in 2015, we'll get to say those were some of the best and happiest times of our lives, and not only the best, but the most important. And those are the things that will stick around. Thank you very much. The 14th century poem. I, I could, but I'm at that stage in the production or prep where I want to wait a little longer before I start announcing it to the world. But you can just go look up on Google 14th century poems and there'll be a list and it'll be one of those. <laughs> it's written in Middle English. When, when would you, if would you uh, come back to New Zealand to make another movie? I hope I will be back here within 12 months to make another movie and I can't wait. Yes, right there. The great children's films that I've seen, um, I'll just think of the ones that I thought about a lot while I was making that, which was The Black Stallion, um, one of my favorites. Um, the Miyazaki films. I remember when we were in prep in Wellington, there was a Miyazaki retrospective going on. And so every day at the end of you know, whatever we were doing, I'd just go watch another one of, one of his films. And that was really uh, phenomenal. Um, my neighbor Totoro, of course, was like a huge inspiration for, for the dragon and Pete's dragon. And and the spirit of, of uh, Princess Mononoke was certainly, you know, something I think about a lot. Um, E.T., first movie I ever saw in cinemas. Actually, no, the second, but that was an, that's another one. There are so many great children's films, and I don't like to call them children's films because the best ones uh, resonate with you no matter how old you are. And like I was saying earlier, you might wanting to make a movie that grows with you. My goal in making Pete's Dragon was to make a movie that I would have loved at the age of seven and that I would still love now at the age of 37. Yes, right back here. What are the things that you've done that so far that have made you the best filmmaker that you can be? The things that have made me the best filmmaker I can be, I almost don't have enough self-perception to really talk about that, but <laughs> the one thing that I always say is that I, and I learned this anew on every film I make, but to, to trust my own instincts and to listen to them, because when I haven't done that, that's when things have gone wrong. It, it happens in every movie. Every film I make, at some point, I will run away from whatever direction my gut is telling me to go in, and things will just start falling apart. <laughs> and I learn that lesson on every movie, and I learn it anew each time, but it's one that I always try to get better at you know, keeping in mind as I set out to make a film. 
And then the other one, the other most important thing is to never stop learning, to never, never reach a point where you think that you know everything, where you're taking for granted all of the experiences and perspectives that you have not even scratched the surface of yet. Because the second you stop doing that, the second you just assume that you know everything or that you've figured it out or that you've cracked the code, you will just flatline. And to keep getting better as a filmmaker, to keep growing both as a filmmaker and as a human being, I just need to always remember that I know almost nothing. <laughs> and that there's a lot out there that I need to learn. Yes, right here. Yes. I've never been asked I've never been asked this one before. Never. No. <laughs> um, so I know it's not revealed to the audience what's actually on the note, and I know that's not the point. Yes. But I was wondering what you kind of imagined was on the note for Rudy Mara's character and what kind of thing had she written in your mind? Well, there is a scene that we cut out where she's talking about, there's a little bit in the movie, I don't know if everyone here has seen this, but early in the movie, Rooney Mars talking about her, when she was a little kid, she would, let, would leave notes places, like little reminders or things, and she would hide them or bury them, and there would be little personal mementos that were left behind only for her to know. And, and she talked in this deleted scene about how they were always very random, about how they were like, don't forget about the mouse that lived in the Christmas tree in 1982. Like, things like that, that would just, you know, bring out some resonance for her as a character. And so I always assumed that it would be something that was very specific to her, like that, or to her and Casey, her, who plays her husband. There'd be something very specific to them that would not matter. It wouldn't have the same resonance to us. But the spirit of it would suggest that it's okay to let go. I mean, it's as simple as that, that it's okay to move on. And, and so I... Have, I'm not lying when I say I don't know what Rooney wrote on the note. I told her to write whatever mattered to her, and I've looked at the footage to see if I can zoom in to see what it says, but I can't. We framed it just well enough that I don't know what she actually wrote, and whatever she wrote got buried into that house and went down with the house, so I don't know, but it's something of that effect, something to that effect. Way in the back here. The process of creating the ghost in a ghost story was, I had this idea in my head of what it, how it would work, how this ghost would work. And, in the, and the idea in my head was, you know, very clear. But what I realized was I was, I was imagining a drawing of a ghost as opposed to a bedsheet ghost, where it's just like a line in an arc with two circles. And that's what I imagine the protagonist of my movie looking like. <laughs> and I thought that that would work because it's a very evocative image. It's a very childlike image. It's something we're all familiar with, and yet we all instantly associate it with the idea of a spirit, even though it's also very tangibly someone wearing a bedsheet. But I wanted something simpler than just someone wearing a bedsheet. When we put, you know, I think I was one of the first people to try the costume on, and it just looked like me wearing a costume. It didn't look like a ghost, and I needed the ghost in this movie to function as a ghost, and we needed to accept it as a spirit, as, as some sort of supernatural presence, and not as an actor wearing a bedsheet. And so it was a lot of trial and error in terms of figuring out how to make that work, and how to make it function not as 
a gag or as a stunt, but as a presence that we would go on this journey with. And there's this, you know, phenomenon, um, the Kuleshev effect, I think is what it's called, where you uh, have a ten- where we have a tendency to project ourselves onto anything we see. We like find human faces anywhere and we will start to project emotions onto things, whether it's a teapot or a mug or a plant, or in this case, a bedsheet with two holes cut out of the eyes. And I knew that if we could pull it off, the emotion that the film creates would then be projected right back onto that sheet and that we would, you know, be able to empathize with this character, even though you can't really tell you know, what he's going through or what his feelings are. And I, you know, earlier just mentioned that, you know, sticking to my gut was like one of the things I've learned the most, or one of the things I've, I've had to like stick, you know, remind myself of. And that was a clear case of like looking at an actor wearing a bed sheet, looking at how dumb it looked, looking at how much it wasn't working. And then, rem- and then instead of quitting, because <laughs> we thought about like, we thought about like, this might not work. We might just need to throw in the towel or the sheet as it were. And, and instead of doing that, reminding myself like, oh wait, on a very instinctual level, there is something here. We just have to figure out how to get to it. And it just, it really was a case of trial and error. This session is presented by Screen Auckland. The Big Screen Symposium is brought to you by Script to Screen and Janda. We would like to thank our event partners, the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, Images and Sound, Screen Auckland, and Stage and Screen Travel Services. Voiceover was provided by Samantha Dukes and music by Poddington Bear.